Hi, I'm Lavinia. And I'm Kelly. Welcome to season two of There She Goes, where women writers share true stories of travel, their stories, their experiences told in their own voices. There's a specific kind of magic that happens when women go traveling, and the stories that spring from those experiences are diverse and limitless. Stories of harrowing escapades, quiet epiphanies, powerful connections, transformative moments, and wild possibilities. There She Goes is a storytelling podcast. It's also an invitation to escape, briefly, to some distant elsewhere with a kindred companion. We hope it offers the exact travel infusion you need right now, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's a vicarious journey to hold you over till you're ready to go exploring again, or inspiration for your next adventure. We love sharing these stories and storytellers with you. So pack your bags and settle in, because here we go. Today we travel with Jenna Skatina to a jungle in northern Thailand, where she impetuously entrusts her life to a mysterious, notorious, and potentially dangerous trekking guide. Jenna is an independent journalist based in Istanbul and San Francisco. She has been an editor for Sunset and San Francisco magazines and has reported for American and British media from 21 countries in the Middle East, Asia, and Europe, where her work explores the intersection of place and culture. She's an international correspondent for Condé Nast Traveler, and her stories have appeared in The Atlantic, BBC, San Francisco Chronicle, Afar, O, The Oprah Magazine, Marie Claire, and Vogue, among others. I'm Jenna Scatina, and I'm reading my story titled, A Walk with a Caveman. The sun lowers over the mountain ridge ahead, the highest in Thailand, leaving a sudden chill in its wake. As the ember-red bus slowly climbs toward the darkening sky, I review the few things I know about John Spies. He's earned the nickname Cave Master of Thailand for mapping more than 200 caverns, some of them the deepest in the world, in the northwest corner of the country. He built his guest house, the Cave Lodge, in 1984, mostly with his own two hands and by paying local villagers with beer. He's Australian and married to a Thai trekking guide whom he met when he was 22. He's now 58. He's discovered ancient tribal coffins in the area and is still on the hunt for a rumored stash of World War II treasure. Traverse the backpacker circuit in Thailand long enough and you'll hear his name. Some say he's crazy, even dangerous, and tell tales of guests at his lodge who have vanished in the nearby jungle or narrowly escaped with their lives. Others hail him as one of the very few authentic explorers left in Southeast Asia. No maps, no sponsorships, no bullshit. Just boots and a feeling he follows. But all the tales are hard to trace to their origin, leaving the man himself an alluring mystery. Which is why, on this chilly December evening, I have impetuously decided to take the five-hour bus ride from Chiang Mai to John's Lodge in the jungle on the Burmese border. The bus drops me at a dusty bench on the side of the road, where a group of women in tribal garb are dismantling their food stalls for the day. There are no tuk-tuks or taxis here. I must rely on strangers and my gut to tell me who I can or can't trust. I hitch a ride with a gentle-eyed villager in a rusty pickup, 
We bump along a narrow, winding dirt road for miles, the sky darkening until the only lights are from the pickup's one functioning headlight and the occasional fires warming families on the side of the road. We drive so far that after 30 minutes, I begin to question the driver's intention. Then we come to a halt at a weathered log cabin. A figure opens the porch door, scrawny shoulders slouch in a canvas German army jacket and clumps of peppered chest hair struggle out of a low white V-neck. The first thing that comes to mind is delusions of grandeur, but there's no turning back. The truck has already disappeared into the jungle. I evaluate the mad scientist hair, the face that possesses the shark sharpness, 1980s rock blares from inside. Well, uh, hurry up. Dinner's almost over, he says. This is the man I've come to meet. I hand him the equivalent of nine US dollars in jade-colored tie bought for three nights in the main dorm. Inside, the bamboo walls are covered with photos of local hill tribes and scrolls of butcher paper listing tours written in colorful ink. There's kayaking, caving, hill tribe treks. John's wife, Du, scoops chicken curry from a giant wok into small bowls and hands them to the five other lone travelers and me. I eat in silence, leaping through a copy of John's self-published memoir, Wild Times, 30 Years on the Thai Border. It begins with a chapter about a young Australian woman who was murdered while staying at the Cave Lodge in 1988. The case was never solved. The rest of the book is riddled with titles that tease at the dark tensions of his reputations. Blind drunk, head for the hills, paralysis, and cold blood. I think maybe I don't need to go on a trek with John to find the answer I'm looking for. But before I can confirm this decision, John hands me a tin cup of whiskey, inviting us to a bonfire on the other side of the lodge. Tomorrow, he says, prodding the flaming logs with a stick, I'm heading just over a ridge above the nearby village. A friend there said he saw a new opening in the mountains. Should be back by early afternoon. Any takers? The five other guests, all men, ignore him. I'll come, I say, tossing back another swig of whiskey. You, huh? He says, surprised in his gaze. I see his point. Between four burly Dutchmen, one German, and me, an American woman in yoga pants, I seem the least likely choice to respond emphatically. He looks me up and down, then heads off to bed without another word. The next morning, I'm in the back of John's old pickup truck, sliding around like a load of loose cargo. We whiz past villagers boiling water over fires, turning up debris in the brisk morning breeze. Dust-cloaked children wave their hands wildly, and barefoot elderly women in black and neon garb smile at us. The crowns of the mountains we're heading for. Foothills of the Himalayas bob on the horizon. This is the outskirts of the Golden Triangle, a remote region where the terrain is tumultuous as its history. The forbidding topography is riddled with gaping caves and rogue 2,000-foot cliffs. Water combines with decayed plants to form a carbonic acid that leaches into tight limestone crevices, slowly eating away at them and eventually carving out hollow valleys and some of the deepest known caves in the world. Above ground, black scorpions, tarantulas, and centipedes scuttle about but John tells me they aren't poisonous to the point of death. Unlike the snakes, such as the ill-tempered Malayan pit viper and king cobras. Inside the caves is a world even more mysterious, unpredictable, and baneful. I recall the ominous way John explains the caves, 
by the fire the night before. Tunnels twist through the earth like an intestinal system, leading to vertical drops that plummet a thousand feet. Carbon dioxide festers and is even exhaled from some of the caves, a fact that inspired John to sarcastically recount a near-death experience. Slow death by suffocation, bloody hilarious. And this world exists in a darkness blacker than outer space, a shade found only in the bowels of a planet. Ten minutes into our trek, I'm barely keeping up with John as we hoof it up a barren, craggy formation toward a lush jungle and the deep blue sky. I glance below us at the small village where he parked the truck. John's pace is one stride per second, swift and not breaking a beat, even when a renegade rock or branch crosses his path. He reminds me of an old but sturdy train chugging at the hill, his breath deep, short, and in steady bursts like a locomotive. Given John's haggard physique and affection for whiskey cigarettes, I concluded I must be in twice as good a shape as him. But not even a single mile in, my chest is already tightening and my calves are cramping while John ascends into the elements without any hesitation. What I like about Thailand, he says, not breaking stride, is that there's no permits to go into the backcountry. You can just do whatever you want and no one will stop you. As if on cue, a gunshot blasts off in the bushes next to us. A villager emerges with a rifle slung over his shoulder and passes us, shining a smile. John grumbles the only thing that scares him are guns. The long-muzzled automatic ones, which the hill tribes surrounding the cave lodge carry in abundance. Luckily, John says, he's on their good side. He befriended most of the local tribes and even lived with the Black Lahu tribe, in the late 1970s when opium addiction was rampant and kids as young as five smoked rolls of rough homegrown tobacco. John rolls a spliff between his fingers, sucks in a steady drag and says, onward mate. I take one last look at the thatch roofed village below, a sight I never thought would indicate such civilization compared to what's ahead. Three hours later, we are trampling leaves the size of elephant ears as branches with the girth of a python reach toward us from every direction. My forearms sting. I look down to see hair-thin trails of blood lashed across my arms. Lime green vines twist and tighten around my ankles as if pleading me not to go deeper, but I pull my way in. With no focal point to rest my eyes on, the jungle feels unreadable, just a shapeless nightmare of green. I ask John if he has a knife, but really, I'm hoping for a machete. Knife, huh? Why in bloody hell would I have a knife? John replies, furiously battling his way through the brush. That's what you got hands for. Then I ask him if he has a compass, and his response is asking if I have the time. When I realize he doesn't have a knife, a compass, or a watch, I conclude that I've just found my unfortunate answer I came here seeking. I followed a crazy man into the wilderness. And I'm getting the feeling that he has no plans to return in the afternoon as he'd promised. So I begin to weigh my chances of turning back on my own. The only thing more dangerous than going forward is turning back, he says, with the conviction of a preacher. But you can go whenever you like, luck to ya. I survey the terrain we've covered and consider the possibility but we've wound around too many cliffs, scaled too many peaks and crossed too many valleys for me to be able to find my way back through this limestone labyrinth. 
And in the chaos of the jungle, a city girl like me wouldn't last very long. I look at my water bottle. There's three ounces left. The gravity of the situation starts to set in. Every few steps, I stop to gauge my chances of making it back on my own. And each time I do, a tar-like dread bubbles in my gut, telling me this time I've followed my curiosity too far. I look behind me one last time and confirm that I have no chance of getting out of the wilderness on my own. I must commit 100% to wherever the whims of John's internal compass takes me. By 4 p.m., we're in a poppy field, crouched below the fading sky on a corroded bamboo platform John says hasn't been used since the area was farmed for opium in World War II. For the first time, I take a moment to appreciate the beauty surrounding us. Grass almost as tall as me sways in the wind. Jagged, slate-gray cliffs jut out of the blonde and violet brush. The sun hangs low and a streak of navy blue is widening on the eastern horizon. My last ounce of water slides too easily down my throat, a cold reminder that we're running out of time. This must be the turnaround point, I think. But no, I should know better. Soon we are at the edge of a steep slope. John takes a step forward and his foot sinks ankle deep into loose dirt, the color and consistency of espresso grounds. He grabs a flimsy bamboo stalk for support. We have to move fast down this, no stopping, he says, then charges down the hill like a warrior sprinting into battle. I stop at the bottom of one of the ravines. The climb up the next pass looks sketchy with loose boulders and rocks unavoidable on the ascent. My mouth is dry and my knees are weak from both exhaustion and fear. John sees me hesitate and pulls a bottle of water from his pack. He's been holding out on me. You can have this, he says, placing it on a rock, but you have to come and get it. Then he disappears over the ridge. Dangling with one arm twisted in vines, I stretch for a distant root sprouting from the side of the cliff. But when I grab a hold, it loosens, releasing a plume of spiders with plump marble-sized bodies and toothpick legs. Dozens pour out, scurrying up my arm and scattering across my body. I feel their feathery feet tickling me as they scamper. I look at the void below that I will fall into if I let go of this root and I cling tighter. The water bottle is glistening in the orange sunlight just a few feet above. I must reach it. I don't even care that hundreds of spiders are crawling on me when my other option is plummeting to a rocky death. I suddenly realize that this is all it took for me to overcome my lifelong fear of spiders and I start laughing. They are the least of my worries. As we begin our descent down the next pass, John tells me he wasn't this intrepid when he first came to Thailand. He was a young backpacker, the same age as me, drifting through Southeast Asia on a shoestring budget when he met Ju, a beautiful Thai woman in Chiang Mai. Ju was the first female trekking guide in the region, and the deeper she lured him into the mountains, the more he fell for her. Soon they were exploring every nook of Northwest Thailand, despite the turbulent nature of it, both topographically and politically. Then the allure of undiscovered caves and rumored treasure drew them 120 miles down a dirt road, originally made as a World War II Burma invasion route, to the spot where the cave lodge sits today. Now, he admits, it's hard to stop. The deeper I go, the greater the temptation to continue. For John, 
Hunting for a new cave is not unlike a junkie seeking his next fix. Realizing this, as the darkness descends around us, makes me question if he has an exit strategy or if he will blindly follow this impulse until he finds the next cave, even if that means we're trekking for days. We finally reach the bottom of the cliff and discover a few yards to our right, the dark gaping mouth of a cave the size of a grand ballroom. A foul smell wafts around us like a monster exhaling the stench of rotting prey. I press my hands against a boulder with a texture of petrified lace and pull my way up. I cobble over a pile of four other boulders with that same ancient feel, then stop where the ground levels out inside the cave. I feel like I'm in the jowls of a sleeping beast. The plunk, plunk, plunk of condensation falling from fang-shaped stalagmites echoes around us. One, as tall as a three-story house, drips onto a patch of perfect emerald ferns and ivy. The unlikeliness of this little Eden and this dark and foul cave surges hope and joy through my chest so quickly it catches me off guard and I start to choke. It's the only place the sun touches, John says. I ponder the time it took for this to form, a time incomprehensibly beyond my experience. I think of the few things in this world that are untouched. I feel a sense of the scale of the universe and for the first time in my life, I kneel down on the earth and I worship something. But my state of euphoria is short-lived. Just as the bruise-colored sky turns to black, the animals of the jungle come alive in a clamor of hoots and hollers. Where's your headlamp? John asks as he cinches his around his head. I don't have one. I thought you were bringing me one. Huh, why would you think that? He turns around before I can answer, his light revealing a thick, tangled wall of thorn bushes with no way around. John desperately beats them down, but they're resilient and slowly close up behind us, encasing us in a daggery tomb. Bloody fantastic, John says, looking defeated. It's too thick and could go on like this for miles. Turn around. And with that, I realize we are lost. When we emerge from the brush, I'm pulling thorns from my sleeve while John hinges over a river as black as the moonless sky, a look of intense contemplation on his face. Oh, hell no, I think. The dark, watery highway rushing by our feet below feels like the edge of the universe. John hesitates, leaning forward, then back, then forward again. Tufts of white water scatter across the river like puffy clouds on a black oil canvas. Signs of rocks and logs beneath the surface. John jumps and sinks chest deep, grabs a protruding branch to keep from being swept away, and begins a slow and unsteady journey across the river. When he reaches the other side, the light from his headlamp rotates around like a lighthouse and pauses on me, shining and shattered brightness through the trees but it quickly turns back around and continues on. I'm left with no time to weigh options and dip myself into the rushing water. My feet slip and slide on the slick rocks beneath my sneakers. I gain my balance and slowly, inch by inch, without lifting my feet from the rocks, begin to shuffle my way across when I feel something slick coil around my ankle. I want to scream and writhe and flail like an infant, but a calm voice within me tells me that will result in me being pulled down the quickly moving river. 
So I keep going, one inch at a time, the opposite bank looking like the farthest finish line that I've ever seen. Steady, steady, I repeat to myself, while the slick, wiggling body around my ankle tightens and tugs. When I reach the other side, there's a cliff one foot higher than my upstretched hand. With no hope of pulling myself onto it, I plunge my fingernails into the dirt and begin clawing away at the cold, moist earth until I reach the icy corpse of a root and curl my fingers around it. I pull myself up, prepared to rip a water snake off my ankle. But it's only a vine. I look at my watch. Midnight. We've been in the jungle for 15 hours and out of water and food for seven. And now John is beginning to move on without me. My mind starts to slide into primitive desires. Fire, water, a road, a path. I think of my backpack sitting on my bed in the lodge with my flashlight uselessly inside it. My toothbrush still moist on the bathroom sink. Will we be at the final chapter in the lore of the cave lodge? Or will we make it back, escaping with another story that few will believe and spread on the backpacker trail, strengthening John's reputation and luring more naive backpackers hungry for real adventure, not heeding the warnings of those who've lived to tell the tale? Don't go, he's crazy. And instead hearing adventure, wilderness, become a real man. Just as I'm plummeting into the darkness within me, just like the cave, dark and foul beyond belief, housing a trove of beauty, a light emerges. John sees it too and starts running. I follow. My dragging feet feel light again and soon we're both running, stumbling, savagely tearing through the jungle like the beasts that's made us. As we approach the light, I see it's coming from a lone, corroded, wooded shack on a narrow dirt path. John gets to the door first and furiously knocks on it. An old man with labyrinths on his face that seem as deep and brown as the canyons we just trekked through answers it. He squints his eyes at us, then chuckles, revealing only a few yellow teeth and motions us inside. He seats us at a table fashioned from an old splintered door, piling tepid chang beers in front of us. We clamor for them like starved animals and guzzle, foam streaming down the sides of our mouths. The floor is dirt, Iron pots are piled on white ashes in one corner, a cot with an old woven rug in the other. A single lantern rocks in the midnight draft. He's a Karen refugee from Burma who moved here to escape the violent military junta, John says, translating. His smile is radiant, contagious. He says he has a truck and can drive us back to mine. John climbs into the bed of the rusted Ford truck and for the first time extends his hands to me. They feel big, weathered, and sturdy as he pulls me in. The old man offers us a few warm beers for the road. The truck grinds up steep grades and curves around mountains whose other side we've just braved. Stars dazzle in the sky like distant diamonds. I think about this experience the next time I encounter something difficult in my life that even when we feel our legs are giving out beneath us and there's no way we'll be able to carry on, not only can we keep going through the darkness with barely a flicker of light, but we can climb mountains and cross rivers and still keep going. That in the world's darkest caves, there are verdant, untouched gardens, and in the most remote, decrepit shack, there is a jovial refugee who helped a couple of crazy strangers in the night. 
I look at John, who's sitting next to me, clutching his straw hat to his chest. A smile spreads across his face, and suddenly, I wonder, was this his plan all along? I study his face hard, trying to determine the answer. But the darkness is obscuring, and I can't tell if it's a smile to be out of the jungle alive or the smug satisfaction that he's pulled off another successful stunt. You've been listening to season two of There She Goes, a storytelling podcast created by two women travelers and recorded from their homes in Alabama and Louisiana. Our theme music is a selection from the song City of Refuge, created and performed by Abigail Washburn. Thanks to Jay Burgess for engineering. Thanks to our amazing writers for proving how essential women's narratives are and for bringing their voices to There She Goes. And thanks to you, our listeners, for coming along. Be sure to tell your friends about There She Goes and follow us on your favorite platforms. And most of all, come back for more illuminating stories from around the world.